last week was a weird week. Um, I think it was just a weird week for everyone. I asked people a little while ago, you know, how many of you kind of had a weird week last week? Um, I had just an off week. It was just off the entire week. And I think the culprit is the holiday. When the holiday is on a Monday, it feels like a Saturday to me. And I preach on Sunday. I was having dinner with some friends on Monday night and, and they were messing with me. And one of them was like, hey, you ready to preach tomorrow? And it totally freaked me out because I wasn't ready, but it felt like I should be preaching tomorrow. And it just the whole week just started off weird. Um, I'll just, how many of you had a little bit off? You get off from a holiday? Yeah, just a little off? Yeah, okay. Um, how many of you are fine no matter what? You're just that kind of, you're just that kind of person. I know this message today is not for you. If you're one of those people who has it all together, nothing ever throws you off, or some of you probably have work schedules where the day of the week doesn't matter. So days off don't make any difference. Monday started off weird for me. Um, you know, the uh, early, early, 4.45 in the morning, I got a phone call. I don't normally get phone calls at 4.45 in the morning. I have two boys, both of them are adults, 23 and 26, soon to be four and seven, 24 and 27. Um, I have been listening from my phone for the last 10 years for both boys in the middle of the night. Occasionally you get phone calls, they're usually not good ones, um, but still even though they live out of state and are both uh, men who take care of themselves, I still kind of keep my ear open for the phone, but this wasn't my boys. This was um, the assistant police chief for the fire, one of the fire departments that, who we support here at Capital City Church. And, Pastor Jared and I are chaplains, volunteer chaplains for the fire department there. I'm sorry, fire de- the fire department. And they called and they said, hey, we've had a death. Um, you know, can you come help us out? Uh, you know, they sometimes we'll ask a, a chaplain to come if um, there's a need for a chaplain, if uh, somebody's having a hard time processing what's happening or uh, they need a little extra assistance. And so they call 445 in the morning, which I'm not, I'm not usually up. It took me a second to wrap my mind around getting up and going. And so, you know, I drive down to a hotel and unfortunately it was a woman who had passed away in a, a kind of an untimely way and unfortunate circumstances and just a really weird, hard day, uh, hard way even to start off the holiday. And then that night um, I FaceTimed my son, my oldest, who is the father of my granddaughter, Emery Lorraine, who is almost five months older. I guess now she's a little over five months old. And I got to watch something super cool. I got to watch her eat her first food, um, you know, besides nursing, her first food. It was pears, but it's like the liquid kind, or not liquid, but the mushy kind, you know, that come out of a jar. And uh, my, my daughter-in-law, you know, is, is like, here comes the airplane, and Emery's watching, going, nah, it's not. And as soon as she put it in Emery's mouth, Emery's like, Poo, you know, and spitting it back. Sorry if that got you. Um, <laughs> spitting it out, and, and so we're watching Joy and I over FaceTime, and just having so much fun watching the first time my granddaughter tasted food. Now, most of the food that she tasted ended up on her bib and her PJs, but um, awesome watching a new life start off with a first experience. Now, many of you know my grandmother, who was 103, had been sick for a little while, um, just a few weeks, and we knew that she wasn't going to get better. And so that night, one of the last prayers that, that I prayed was that God would come take my grandma, you know, because at the end of life, at the end of 103 years old, when you're sick and you're praying to see Jesus, that's what you want. And so sometime later that night, my grandmother passed away and went to be with the Lord. And so I'm thinking on Tuesday morning, my goodness, I've had a day yesterday that was framed with a death that was untimely and unfortunate, a birth experience, a first watching a little girl eat food for the very first time, and then the death of somebody who lived a long life, who was a believer, who wanted to go home. And it just made me really think it challenged me in a lot of different ways. 
One of the challenges that I was thinking about, one of the things was we are responsible for, for many things in life, but oftentimes we don't, we don't control the day we're born and we certainly shouldn't control the day we die. But we do have a lot of responsibility for the days in between. And I was thinking about my Christian worldview, thinking about grief and thinking about joy and excitement and just all the stuff that we deal with. And one of the things that just was overwhelming to me is that our Christian worldview must inform every part of our life. If it doesn't inform every single part of our life, it misinforms every single part of our life. I don't know if that makes sense to you now, but I hope it will by the time we're done this morning. But our Christian worldview, the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the things that we know to be true, and I was thinking about the message that I brought last week, and I kind of love this time of the year because I'm not in the middle of a series, and so I get to, to just sort of take you through the things that God's taking me through in my own uh, Bible study time and my own personal time with the Lord. So last week, we talked about Hebrews chapter 4, the end of Hebrews chapter 4, and about how Jesus did all the work necessary for us to be Christians, that he conquered, went through the three stages, right? In, in 2 Corinthians, they talk about the three stages of heaven. We talked about the priest going through the three stages of, of the temple and how Jesus was the great high priest, that he ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand, completing the work necessary for us to be saved, to go boldly before the throne of grace, to get all of the help that we need in any of our tough times in life. And I was thinking about it, and I'm thinking about the fact that we have all of the tools that we need to face this life but that our worldview must inform every part of our lives that if we don't allow it to, it just doesn't work. So I backed up in the book of Hebrews and began to read Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1. And at first, it was really confusing to me, but I wanted to find out what are the, what's the backstory? What are the principles behind these exciting truths that we talked about last week? And so I just spent a few days taking my time and working through this great passage. And one of the things, the themes that continued to come up was a word that I have a hard time with. I don't like it. Now, you may be very different than me, and that's okay. In fact, it might be a good thing. You might be happy if you're very different than me in the way I process things. I would guess the room would be just as divided in this particular word and how we respond to it as it was with how many of you have a little bit of an off week when a holiday starts the week or how many of you just you know, motor right on no matter what. But the word to me is stressful, and it's, it just doesn't settle well, but it's the word, the word that is consistent in the beginning of this passage we're going to talk about. It's consistent in the book of Matthew where Jesus makes promises to us, and so it's a word that I want us to discuss, and I want us to become comfortable with it because it's part of, or even the result of, our Christian worldview informing every part of our life. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, our Christian worldview has to inform the way we grieve. The Bible tells us that when we grieve, we don't grieve as someone who has no hope, but we grieve as someone who knows true hope. When we celebrate, our worldview informs our celebration. When we pray, when we hurt, when we're stressed out and concerned and worried for people who we love, when we're facing decisions, when we have struggles and trials in relationship, when we parent, how we treat people. And this word that keeps coming up in the New Testament and came up in Hebrews multiple times is a word, I'll just tell you what it is, it's the word rest. And I don't mean like the rest of the story, I'll tell you the rest of the story, but I mean rest. 
like I need a rest. I'm not a person who really likes rest. And I don't say that to, to sound, you know, like, like I'm super productive and, you know, just trying to drive, drive, drive. It just stresses me out. I never liked naps as a kid. My mom, I still remember when I had to take naps. I hated nap time. I hate nap time now. Joy sometimes will go to sleep, you know, and I'm like, man, I'm not going to sleep. No way. There's plenty of time to sleep, right? When all this life is done and gone. And even the idea of retirement stresses me out. People who are retired tell me that I'll change my mind and I might change my mind. I just don't look forward to a time when I'm not going to be doing what I do. And I just feel like God has this work that he wants us to accomplish and I want us to get there together and I want to drive together and achieve together and, and praise God together. So when you tell me take a rest, I'm like, man, I don't want to take a rest. And, and so I started to get a little bit anxious when I'm studying this passage. And I'm like, what is this? I got to get complacent? If my worldview, my Christian worldview informs you know, everything about my life? Do I have to get lethargic? unproductive, lackadaisical. So to understand what this does for us, we have to look at the opposite of this word rest and understand what the gospel will do in our lives and having our Christian point of view or worldview inform everything about us. The opposite of rest is restlessness or restless. Now, how many of you can relate to being restless in your soul? That's something I can relate to. And when the Bible says that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us rest, it means a number of different things, and certainly it's talking about the rest that my grandmother understands now as she left this biological life behind and opened her eyes instantly to the reality of heaven and saw Jesus. That's ultimately rest, but there's a rest of our soul a peace, a steadfastness, a confidence where you and I can be home, fully home, inside our spirit. And the author of Hebrews talks about that. And it's something I want to talk to you about today because I want that for you and I want that for me. And the thing is that the author of Hebrews was writing to a group of Jews, many of whom were Christians, but some had taken a step away from Judaism, which was really legalistic and full of a bunch of stuff they were supposed to do and laws they were supposed to keep and sacrifices they were supposed to make. And, and they had taken a step away, but they hadn't fully entered this whole Christian thing. Some were having a hard time leaving the works behind. Some the tradition, some the world they grew up in, some their friends or family they were having to choose to take steps away from. Some just decided it may cost too much and they weren't 100% sure. So there were a group of people among the original audience who had taken this step away from their old life but hadn't fully embraced this life of Christ. They weren't sure. They looked like Christians. They existed within a Christian community, blended into the church. They were really good at impression management. The people around them wouldn't have any idea if their Christian worldview was informing the rest of their life, if their faith was strong. But in reality, they just hadn't made the decision to follow Jesus. And then there were some who'd made the decision to follow Jesus, and they had fully immersed themselves in this Christian worldview, but for whatever reason had begun to turn their backs, and they thought about going back to the way that it used to be. Choosing restlessness over a steadfast, confident, at-home soul. The restless soul communicates to me. I don't want it. And the beautiful thing about this gospel is we don't have to have it. 
So let's look together at this passage, Hebrews chapter 4. It's the beginning of the passage that you and I covered last week that we enjoyed so much. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, remember I told you last week that the original language, sometimes when, when people, our translators, translated it into English, it sounds much more complicated than it is. This is one of those times. I'm gonna read it to you, and then we're gonna go back and walk through it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they didn't share the faith of those who believed. Pretty simple so far. An opportunity to become believers chosen not to because their hearts weren't in the same place as those who chose to obey Jesus. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger that you shall never enter my rest, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his works, and again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest rest. Now this passage is, it sounds complicated, it's super simple, but we're jumping to the end, and I want to read to you the end and explain the end, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of briefly unpack the beginning. Now the story that's woven throughout, or at least hinted at in Hebrews chapter 4, is the story of the children of Israel after they left Egypt after they had escaped uh, the, the persecution in Egypt as slaves, and after they had wandered in the wilderness and been led up to the banks of the, the promised land, choose, choosing not to go into the promised land, uh, choosing not to follow God, and, and things that happened, you probably know the story, and how some had obedient hearts, most didn't, and those who had disobedient hearts who came right up to that promise, who almost stepped into God's rest, chose not to and chose to walk away those who had a double-mindedness about them, who weren't quite sure, those who perhaps stepped over and turned and chose to go back. And at the end of this passage, there's a statement that's made, and I want us to talk about this because it's both encouraging and also terrifying at the same time. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now let's talk about this just for a second. The Bible's telling us, it's speaking about itself, the author of Hebrews, that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There were two types of swords that went on or that were used in Jesus' day. One was the kind of sword that was used in the, um, well, the movies. I said Highlander the movie earlier, and no one knew Highlander. Anyone know Highlander? Okay, some of you old guys know Highlander. How many of you know Lord of the Rings? Some of you know Lord of the Rings, okay. The big swords that you swung with two hands, the kind of swords that, that you just kind of approximated, that you just started taking swings at people, and maybe you hit them, maybe you didn't. Not the kind of sword that's being mentioned here. The kind of sword that's being mentioned here would have been a small dagger that was very sharp that was used by a very skilled soldier, somebody who could get up close and could stab somebody inside the armor and kill them. And you think about this, 
and the word of God being compared to it, the word of God gets up close and personal, and it gets up, up, up close and personal to us, and when it gets up close and personal, it exposes the weakness, it exposes the heart, it reveals to us the kinds of things that are lurking deep within us. It judges our thoughts and our attitudes. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This talks about the fact that there's no attitude or thought or action that we have that we can hide from God. Oftentimes, you and I get very good at hiding our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. We can look like we exist with a Christian worldview informing all of our lives. We can fool the people who are around us to where they think that we're something that we're not. But the Bible says that God's word exposes the heart and the motive and that even though I may not know you and you might not know me, that I can fool you, you can hide, we cannot truly be known, that there's nothing in us that God can't see, nothing he doesn't know. And the beautiful thing about God is that he loves us anyway. There's two different analogies or word pictures that are used here. Two powerful word pictures. Nothing in all creation, let's go back if we can, to nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So as nothing is hidden from God, the, the second part of this analogy or explanation is, is that at some point you and I are going to have to come face to face with whether or not we made the choice to be all in, to step across this line, to give ourselves fully to the Lord. And the two different illustrations or analogies, the first one is used of a wrestler. Anybody wrestle in here? I never wrestled. I know many people in Iowa wrestled. Iowa is a wrestling state. This is the first part of this example is how at some point we will be pinned to the ground and forced to come face to face with somebody who is our superior. The second was a judicial kind of a reference that's sort of hidden in here in the English, but it's obvious in the original language, and that is that when a person was accused of a crime, they had a, a, a sword, this short sword that we had talked about, strapped to their chest, and when they had to go before the judge or before the jury, those who were accusing them, this sword was strapped to their chest and pointed at their chin to where they couldn't look down and avert their eyes, that they had to make eye contact with their accusers. They had to come face to face with the reality of the choices that they've made. So the illustration that we talked about with the children of Israel leaving Egypt and going right up to the banks of the promised land, turning around at the last moment, only a few having faith, having an entire generation die out, yet coming back to the same spot, reminds us that the only thing that matters is the condition of our heart and whether you and I choose to be all in. Let's look at this next passage. In Psalm 95, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I had done before. 
For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath on my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So what's this rest that God keeps talking about? What's this rest that the author of Hebrews is writing about? What's this rest that you and I need to enter into? How is it that we let our worldview, our Christian worldview, inform every part of our lives to where you and I cease to have a restless soul? How is your soul? Is your soul at rest? Or is it restless? This morning we had the news on, national news, as we were getting ready for church. And Joy kind of hollered in from the bathroom, you got to turn that off. And I said, how come? She said, I've heard enough, right? How many of us in here have heard enough? The restlessness of the soul causes a reaction of anxiety to the crazy events of the world around us. But yet the Bible says that if we enter into a relationship with Jesus, he will give us rest. So let's look at this together. The dictionary definition goes along perfectly with the biblical definition. There are five things that the Bible will illustrate that this rest is, and of course we're talking about at the end of this, you'll see that there is a rest that lies at the end of this life, but this is the rest, the opposite of restlessness that you and I have here as we decide to be 100% in, in this relationship with Jesus. The first is that we stop our labor or our exertion, that there is no more self effort. Now, I don't know if that speaks to you or not. Probably depends on the kind of church or kind of Christianity, the kind of ways that you were raised, who you were around, how you view the Lord. But for some, being religious is exhausting. Constantly trying to stay ahead of a snowball that you believe is coming, knowing that we can't quite be good enough to do it yet trying just the same. Terrified that somebody else is gonna see who we really are and judge us so we act a little better, become a little holier in the worst kind of way, a little more judgmental, a little more self-righteous, and a whole lot more proud. And the Bible says that a relationship with Jesus gives us rest, that we can stop laboring, that we can stop trying to work our way there, that we don't have to care what religious people think because we've been freed to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, rest is to be free from what worries or disturbs us, to be free from a restless, troubled heart. What worries or disturbs you? Boy, I bet our answers to this question would be as different as the people who are in this room. At the end of the day, the restless heart is a heart that tries to control. It's a heart that tries to do, a heart that tries to make lists of things, ways that we can be transactional and earn God's favor. 
The troubled heart is a heart that can't be settled. Can't be comfortable. Can't be at rest. And the cool thing about this is, is that a person who gives themselves to Jesus has this kind of heart created in them. So we don't add a to-do list to our lives to try to figure out how to get there. It's not a set of skills that we develop. It's a set of principles that we embrace and the Holy Spirit creates in us a whole different way of thinking. Number three, it means to lie down or to be settled or fixed. Now the biblical correlation here is that we don't have to continue to wonder which religion is correct? What paths lead to God? I've spent so much of my life talking with people, trying to be an articulate voice, speaking out for Jesus in a marketplace of ideas because Jesus himself says in the book of John, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And some interpret that as Jesus standing as a linebacker wanting to knock anybody down who tries to come. And Jesus says, come to me. Anyone who wants to come can come. But the only way you can come is through me and you can stop trying to work the angles and solve the puzzle and thinking everything through and making sure that it makes sense to us and our own human minds and we can finally settle down or be fixed on the reality of Jesus. Number four, to remain confident, to put your trust in something. Guaranteed that no matter what happens, things are okay. This is a big one, isn't it? Because we want to know what the future holds. We want to be in control. Just this last week, Joy and I were sitting down at Mercy Hospital. Don't recommend it. Um, I don't recommend any hospital if you can stay out of the hospital. But we were down at Mercy. I had some tests. I've told you guys that they're still trying to get to the bottom of all the thyroid cancer and stuff. And we're sitting in a waiting room. And as we're in the Mercy Hospital waiting room, uh, they're, they're running late. And I think the medical profession, here's my revelation. This has come to uh, my attention. I've formed a conclusion. Maybe you have my conclusion. You share it. Maybe you don't. The medical profession and professionals don't give a rip about my schedule. They don't care. Now, is that surprising to you? They don't care about your schedule. And so I'm sitting there, I check in. They say, get there an hour early. I get there an hour early. I had done my pre-check-in phone call, right? My pre-enrollment, where I gave them all my information. So I walk up to the check-in desk and what do they do? Ask me the exact same questions, exactly. I got there an hour early to answer the exact question. So I asked the lady, I put a smile on my face, had a mask on, my eyes were smiling. I said, let me ask you a question. Why did you call me yesterday if I have to answer these questions again? And she said, well, we just wanna be sure. So then I go upstairs, I sit down and I wait and my appointment time was 1 p.m. I'm ready to go. I don't like needles, I don't like procedures, I don't like doctors, I don't like anything about it, nothing. I'm there, one o'clock, nothing happens. I'm watching people come, watching them go, watching people get wheeled down the, the alley there who've had surgery, my anxiety's going up a little bit more. 30 minutes and nobody's come to get me yet. And so I get up. Now, between you and me, I was just going to the bathroom. But I told my wife, I said, I'm leaving. And Joy said, you're not leaving. That's the reason I'm here because I knew that if I didn't come, you wouldn't stay. And I said, no. I said, it's obviously an inconvenient time for the doctors. 
Obviously, the radiologist has more going on in his day. It would be thoughtful of me if I could leave and come back and schedule at a time when they have a more open schedule and can work me in. And Joy said, you are not leaving. So at this point, I'm pushing a little bit, you know, with Joy. And I said, watch me. And she goes, I'm not going to watch you do anything. I said, how can you be so sure I'm not leaving? And this is what she said. I'm the one who has the car keys. (laughs) Now, it's funny, but there's a principle there. In the middle of our anxiety, in the middle of our stress, in the middle of our wondering, in the middle of us trying to decide if everything's going to be okay, sometimes you and I forget who's holding the car keys. Jesus is holding the car keys. And we're okay with that. When our worldview informs our entire lives, we can put our trust in something even if it's a little stressful. And finally, this word rest means to lean on. What is it you lean on? Well, I don't want to lean on something that I think is going to fall. I don't want to lean on something that I don't think is going to be there next time I come over and try to lean on it without looking. Most things in life are temporary. Even the best things can be taken from us. Loss is part of being human. We want something permanent. We want something real. The Bible tells us that when we enter into God's rest, the end of our restlessness, that we have something to lean on, literally to put our full weight on. It's the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. That we have someone to put our weight on who knows everything, who is all-powerful, who is everywhere, who controls all of the billions of contingencies in life to bring about his plan. And the safest place to be, the only place to leave our restlessness behind is in that personal relationship with him. As we conclude, I want to point you toward an invitation from Jesus. I want to ask you, are you one of those perhaps who've come right up to the line and considering whether or not you want to step over and leave that old life behind? Have you maybe stepped over that line, become a believer, made that commitment to follow Jesus, but are considering turning back? Are you enjoying the restless soul? Are you fighting the battle with self? Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened. Sort of a compound thought here, and it's a beautiful one for me. Maybe you can relate. A person who's carrying everything they can carry, everything, heavy weight. You're carrying it as best you can, and then somebody dumps something else on you, you don't know how in the world you can cope. That's what the analogy, the illustration, that's what the word picture is. That you thought you had it as much as you could do, now you got more than you can can control. 
It's gonna crush you. You gotta have help. Come to me, all you who can identify with that, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How's your burden? Well, as we conclude our time together, I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you will enter in to God's rest. If perhaps you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, that you are considering making this decision, I just want to remind you that Jesus makes it so simple and so clear that we first confess our sin, which is really an easy thing to do. It may be hard to get to the point where you want to, but it's simply acknowledging that we've sinned and fallen short, that we have thoughts, actions, and attitudes displeasing to the Lord. And we tell God we don't want to do it anymore. The second thing we we do is we believe who Jesus is, that he's 100% God and 100% man and lived a perfect life and died a death he didn't deserve. He died for me and you. He rose again, and now he ascended into heaven where he's seated at God's right hand. The third thing is we tell God, I want to live my life for you, not for me anymore. I want to end the restless spirit. I want to be at home. For those perhaps who've made a decision to follow Christ but are being tempted, being pulled back into the old way of thinking, perhaps today's the day that we turn back around to make things right to find this rest. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you.